right, welcome everyone to the April 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO for making this possible. And as a reminder, the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum is dedicated to the promotion, education, and dissemination of pre-hospital research. And we believe it is the responsibility of emergency medical professionals worldwide to build a body of evidence to examine pre-hospital emergency care. And so here on the PCRF Journal Club, we take a closer look at some of the latest research happening in EMS. I'm Remley Crow, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we also have with us the authors from the paper, Dr. Hill Steckline and Dr. Scott Youngquist. As a reminder, the article we're going to be reviewing this month is Paramedic Rhythm Interpretation Misclassification is Associated with Poor Survival from Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, which was published in Resuscitation. As always, this discussion will be paired with an article written by our very own columnist, Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. And so we encourage our listeners to check out this article at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And I wanna thank the audience also for joining us today. As we begin, I wanna remind you, you can use the chat feature on your screen to type in questions and comments. I encourage you to do that as we will be bringing those into the conversation as we go. And so without further ado, let me extend a warm welcome to our authors. Thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thanks, Remley. It's our pleasure to be here. And so for our audience who may not know you all, could we kick off with just some introductions? Love to hear about who you are, what you do, and maybe just even how you got into EMS research in general. So Dr. Youngquist, we'll start with you. Sure. Happy to be here. I am the medical director for the Salt Lake City Fire Department and a faculty member at the University of Utah Department of Emergency Medicine. I um, finished residency in um, in Los Angeles and then did an EMS research fellowship. So I had enough interest in EMS research to actually do a fellowship in it and uh, worked with the LA County EMS system and a doctor named Marianne Gaucher, who is um, pretty famous in the world of EMS research for her pediatric airway trial back in 2000, published in JAMA. And so learned a lot from her. I did a master's in epidemiology at the UCLA School of Public Health as well to kind of figure out how to do research. And uh, it's been one of my interests and passions ever since. I've focused most of my attention to the pre-hospital care of cardiac arrest. And um, that's been my background. Love it. Dr. Stickling. Yeah, so I, uh, I did my emergency medicine residency out here at Utah and met Scott as one of my attendings. Um, so chose to do an EMS fellowship despite having no background in EMS, not an EMT or paramedic or, or anything. Um, did my fellowship here, uh, worked out in the community for a couple of years and then came back to the university a few years ago um, and mainly got into research because of this guy sitting next to me and uh, still rely heavily on him for most of uh, what I'm involved with. But. That's my background. Love it. So we've got Dr. Youngquist to thank or blame. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So I'm really, really excited again to have you on because I read this paper and it was very interesting. And just for our audience around you know, what is the objective of this study, we're talking about how accurately paramedics classify initial shockable rhythms. Um, but you all used a really interesting approach with defibrillators that have a technology called ERF. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it worked in this study? Absolutely. So ERF is a rhythm filtering technology, which attempts to 
figure out what the rhythm is, or at least uh, get rid of a lot of the noise that's seen when you do chest compressions and are pushing rhythmically on the chest. If you'll notice on the monitor, you typically see a lot of just noisy movement. It's like uh, the waves are occurring in patterns consistent with your chest compression rate. And what that does is make it very difficult to interpret the underlying ECG rhythm. And so rhythm filtering technology attempts to, using a computer built within the, the monitor to filter out the stuff that's the noise and give you a cleaner signal for what the underlying rhythm is. Awesome. And so as you were taking on the study question, uh, you, what was the impetus for this? So like, what made you want to take on the question of are paramedics recognizing uh, the rhythm during out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? I think it stemmed in part from our, our quality improvement reviews, which we do regularly for every cardiac arrest. Um, and we can get into a little bit more detail if people are interested in that later. But um, mainly Dr. Youngquist, who was doing this before I started working with Salt Lake Fire, came across a handful of cases where retrospectively looking at um, the Zoll uh, monitor files, we were seeing ventricular fibrillation that was usually fine ventricular fibrillation misinterpreted as asystole. Uh, and therefore, obviously, the patients weren't um, getting the defibrillation attempts that they needed. And so uh, that at least prompted the decision to introduce this idea of an empiric shock into our protocols. Uh, and then, you know, after some period of time doing that, we decided to take a look at all of, uh, all of the arrests that we've run and uh, see how our paramedics are doing in terms of adhering to those protocols and using those, um, those sort of system-wide uh, fixes for some of those uh, issues that we had identified. Yeah, so to add to that, in addition to the documentation of care that was given, we review defibrillator files to summarize the CPR quality. Maybe many of you do that in your system as well, give that feedback to the paramedics. But we also go with the fine tooth comb through the rhythm, the entire rhythm strip, so to speak. It's it's not a strip because it's a continuous feed on the, the, the uh, electronic software, but to look at the appropriateness of shock delivery. And um, it was really after a Sentinel case that I began to wonder how often might this occur that paramedics misinterpret ventricular fibrillation as asystole and fail to deliver a shock. Um, in fact, the case that was a Sentinel event was a witnessed arrest, um, had all of the things that would suggest it was ventricular fibrillation, but was misinterpreted throughout the resuscitation attempt as asystole and terminated on scene. And when I brought in the paramedic involved in rhythm interpretation and showed him the, the rhythm, he, he said, that's definitely VF. And I said, well, that is the one you misclassified. And he was very surprised. So, um, you know, we're all human, we all make mistakes. And so human error is gonna be a part of any type of clinical care. Uh, but looking in the literature, it hadn't really been explored very much um, how much that might contribute to outcomes in cardiac arrest. We, we all train to, that if we see a squiggly line that doesn't have any organization to it, we shock that and everything else we don't. But um, one of the studies I found early on was just a tabletop exercise amongst paramedics to see how often they could agree on the interpretation of rhythms that were either very coarse VF going down to asystole and only at the extremes did they find very good agreement between the paramedics when they just handed them a rhythm strip for every other VF waveform in between, there was more and more disagreement as you headed toward asystole. That's really interesting. Um, and so were those simulations or how was that conducted? 
those were just tabletop exercises where they found representative samples and printed them out and then mm -hmm. tested paramedics one by one to see how often they would agree on those things. And so obviously course VF, as we call it, um, occurs early on in most cases of ventricular fibrillation and looks like a very choppy ocean. And over time that decays until you have Lake Placid with your ECG and it's just asystole. But everything in between becomes sort of an eye of the beholder interpretation. And um, even with this paramedic who had interpreted the rhythm as asystole throughout the resuscitation, on the different day when I brought him in to look at it again, he clearly recognized that was VF and was surprised and wondered why, how that could have possibly happened. So we, we thought this would be interesting to know how often it happens. And with a large data set developed over time with uh, our quality assurance process, we were able to look at that. Right, and this sounds like you know a great question for a quality assurance and quality improvement initiative. And I know at your service, you've been doing quality management for a long time. I'm curious to know a little bit more about how that works when you decide to take on a quality improvement project like this. Well, um, this one we, we feel is part of good clinical care is to give feedback to the paramedics on their performance, um, paramedics and EMTs who are performing chest compressions using a defibrillator. So we, we uh, modeled our program really on the Seattle King County model of measuring and improving through continuous feedback on cardiac arrest. And so we gather everything from the 911 call to the outcome occurring in the hospital and give the feedback to um, all involved, including the dispatcher who took the call, the paramedics and EMTs who took care of the patient, and uh, anybody else involved in the care. I love to hear that. A lot of my work has been in the arena of burnout in EMS, and we've seen how feedback can actually be one of those things that fights burnout, to know that you know, somebody cares enough about your professional development to provide that feedback, and whether or not you know, the clinical care you perform actually mattered. So that's absolutely huge. Now, I know everybody is on the line listening for this study, so I am going to start to talk about exactly how it was you conducted that, and I'm going to invite Jeff Rollman to help me go through some of the methodology. Um, but as he's popping on, let's start with, let's talk about the study setting. We On this podcast, we talk a lot about how important it is to think about study setting, especially when you're going to decide how to interpret these findings and say, are these findings likely to apply to my own area or my own service? Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about the Salt Lake City Fire Department? Yeah, so Salt Lake Fire um, is uh, a, a tiered system. Uh, we have both EMTs and paramedics responding um, with our cardiac arrests, and we have uh, 14 stations plus a couple of mobile squad teams within our system. But um, for our cardiac arrest cases, there is always a BLS unit, which is often uh, first in, in addition to an ALS unit. Um, so we are always working uh, at least, um, well, at least eight six handed. to eight-handed, yeah, uh, if not more. Um, we also have a, a private ambulance service that does all of our transports for us, um, and so oftentimes those providers are also on scene. So we have a lot of hands for each arrest, and we've, we've set things up deliberately that way. Um, but that is one important thing uh, about our system that may not be generalizable to all systems um, for those of you listening. Okay, so we're talking about at least usually eight pairs of hands, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, that's it. How many use, I was going to say we use MPDS system for 911 dispatch to identify cardiac arrests and um, 
then mobilize the nearest available unit, whether that's ALS or BLS first in. I'm just curious too, um, I, and congratulations on your study. Uh, just as we discuss different models and how they're how you run a system with multiple hands uh, on deck, um, have has pit crew CPR really taken root in this system? And do you have one person assigned to the monitor rhythm interpretation and defibrillation, or is it kind of the responsibility of the overall leader of the resuscitation? Has, was that well defined in, in the system prior to the study? Yeah, so that is something that we've implemented, um, and and that was started. I don't know, Scott, what six, seven years ago? Yeah, oh, a lot yeah. longer now. Um, yeah, so pit crew is is definitely part of our um, system, and that was implemented at the same time as this sort of very structured review and feedback for all cardiac arrest cases. So that came as this part of this big bundle to try to improve our cardiac arrest care um, under Scott's direction, um, you know, initially when he started. So yes, there are assigned roles for individuals, and like we said earlier, we're lucky enough to be able to mobilize enough individuals um, that we can divide those duties up pretty well and assign someone to managing the monitor and keeping an eye on rhythm, someone to airways, someone to medications, um, and individuals switching out as compressors. So uh, it's nice to be able to have defined roles and I think allows people to focus on those um, tasks uh, more so than you would if you were working two-handed or, or even four-handed. Yeah, and in fact, that combination of a pit crew approach to the resuscitation and this quality feedback led to an almost doubling of survival in Salt Lake City. We did publish those re results in the Journal of the American Heart Association several years ago. So yeah. it's, something, it's something that not only helps the paramedics in terms of the quality of their care, it helps patients as well. Love it, love it. And is the person, in charge of documentation, the same as the person who is the code leader? Is that defined in the system pretty well? Or do you have a, a, a hierarchical system where you have the, the captain from a, one of the units, the first arriving unit? Was that defined? That's a good question. So yes, we generally have for these cases, the captain will be recording sort of time-stamped um, interventions during the resuscitation. Um, the captain obviously is not necessarily involved in patient care. Um, that way you take the documentation burden off of someone who is uh, actively involved in patient care. Oftentimes then the team lead, whoever was in charge of, of the arrest at that point, will write the narrative and do that sort of documentation um, after. But in terms of time-stamping events, defibrillation, um, airway interventions, medications, uh, that's usually uh, handled by the captain. The, the person running the monitor also has the ability to add timestamps to the monitor file uh, where they can say, you know, this is when uh, we administer this medication or this is when we uh, applied a Lucas device if that's done or this is when we um, did any number of things. So that helps us in terms of our post-event review uh, as well and we can sort of match up what's timestamped on the monitor with um, what's charted in the EPCR. Got it. There's Got it. a section in the EPCR that's usually completed probably at the end of the resuscitation that contains key variables that we call Utstein variables that are things like, was the arrest witnessed? What was the initial rhythm? Was there bystander CPR performed, et cetera? Yeah, I love it. And then uh, just again, kind of getting down to the granular 
the captain is not necessarily always uh, paramedic. Is that true, or is, are all captains in that system paramedics? No, not always are they paramedics. And I would say I would say there is some variability in who does the documentation. What we what we prescribe is for the captain to be doing that, since they're they can gather information from the scene and record things. Um, but it doesn't always work out that way. So I'm I'm always curious. The challenge here is is great, right? Because it's a multifactorial kind of analysis of of uh, cardiac arrest has so many different variables. And in the in the case of the interpretation of a moving strip versus a static strip that people do when they take a test, uh, the 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 fact that um, in in motion and in the middle of a cardiac arrest interpretation of that EKG may be different, but the documentation of such an interpretation and the result of the care from the interpretation are each individual uh, things that could go awry at various steps in the in the chain, right? They, the right care could have occurred, but the wrong documentation, the the right documentation and the wrong care, and then and then who's actually really pushing the button or interpreting it uh, can can really make the mix really challenging. But I, you know, so very uh, fascinating kind of thing to look at, and I'm. I'm super curious. I, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to get to the results, right? But the, the concept that the, um, the knowledge of the provider really matters um, to the outcome of the cardiac arrest uh, is, is it's just very, um, Mickey Eisenberg, I think, said it best at, a, at an NAMSP meeting when he was asked, you know, does ALS really, does it even matter? should you even want to have paramedics here because it seems like compressions and basic life support make so much uh, sense in terms of the the outcome and he was he, he said you know if you heard that from my message then you maybe weren't listening to me very carefully uh, because it takes very smart individuals to choreograph this many people to do it exactly the way it's supposed to be and actually get the things done. And that that choreography of the right and intervention at the right time, the right interpretation, um, is something your your paper is really, really digging into. And so I love it. Just love it. Congratulations. You said a lot there, and I wanna there are three things that we don't necessarily have to dive into right now, but I at least want to mention so we can maybe touch on them later. One, you talked about the difference in documentation versus interpretation and that different people can be doing that on scene. That I think is one of the benefits, and we don't have this currently, um, but one of the benefits to being able to audio record your resuscitations um, is getting even more data there um, to evaluate congruencies between providers and what actions are taken based on interpretations um, and your documentation. A second point that you brought up is the challenge of interpretation with a moving strip during the resuscitation compared to what we did, which is looking at these files retrospectively. Um, and we can slide back and forth and we can look at that strip and we can really stare at it and say, boy, do we think that's VF? Do we think they're organized complexes? And we had that luxury um, looking at this stuff retrospectively and um, you know, providers on scene don't have that luxury. And I think that's one of the take homes here is that, um, you know, our, our paramedics within the um, prescribed system that we have, including rhythm filtering, which we talked about, and including the empiric shock, did a really good job 
um, acting on their interpretations as good as what other studies have found for physician uh, interpretation and agreement um, of those interpretations. So I think that's one big take home. And then the third thing, another big take home is that what the providers do on scene and their interpretation of things and their documentation matters a lot downstream and in the hospital, right? Um, that's one of the big findings of this paper is that um, that initial rhythm interpretation doesn't just affect what happens on scene, but it likely affects what happens in the hospital too. Um, oh, I, so I love this. I, and you're touching on so many key points. You know, you think about PEA as a low flow state. You know, when after Heidi did the study with the um, uh, the art line cannulation in the field, and they saw such low pressures that they could be misinterpreted by a, a paramedic as being either in full cardiac arrest or not cardiac arrest. And what we do in that fragile state upon return of pulse, where we think, well, I can't feel a pulse, and then you get very aggressive with whatever, epinephrine or shocks, et cetera. Um, that that is a is a delicate delicate balance, and sometimes cardiac arrests have become you know sort of a very systematic approach to if it's this then this then this, and there's there's uh, there's that subtle uh, interpretation and and confirmation of interpretation. It's that crew resource management. If we're confirming medications, should we also have a double confirmation of of what the rhythm is? And then, then we get into uh, you know, a culture of safety that says, we're about to do an intervention and we're gonna triple confirm that not just everybody's clear, but that that's really the rhythm we're, we're defibrillating. And, and th these, are, these are masterful things that can occur in the middle of a resuscitation when sometimes it's extremely chaotic, not everybody can see the screen. People are people are uh, moving around. It's it's it's, uh, it's so. I just think you've touched on a, a really important piece, and it's it's very cool. First off, just wanted to thank you again, Dr. Youngquist and Dr. Steckline, for being on here and sharing your terrific work, which I know started as quality improvement and now research, you know, sharing this to a wider audience. Um, just want to cover a few more things before we get into results. Um, thank you for covering that context of the Salt Lake City system. As we all know, when you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. So definitely helpful to know um, a little bit about where you're all coming from. Um, in terms of context, just want to talk a little bit more about what exactly we're looking at, what some of our inclusion and exclusion criteria are. So if you don't mind just sharing that. Um, and you also had a nice diagram, figure one, uh, if we could share that, that shows um, not as much our inclusion, but some of what got excluded as well. So we can know the cases that came in here. Sure. Yeah, I can mention how you get into our cardiac arrest database and quality assurance project is to have either a shock received by a public access defibrillator or EMS providers performing CPR. And then we exclude from those cases traumatic causes of cardiac arrest, drownings, strangulations. Um, those are the main um, ones that we exclude. Those, um, the approach is often different for a traumatic arrest than for a medical cardiac arrest but it's, it's one of those two criteria to start, and then we exclude other ones from, from the database. 
this shows our exclusions for this particular study. Um, we don't always, we aren't always able to capture the defibrillator files. We're pretty good on most of them. Um, we're around, we're over 90% at this point where we're able to capture them. It's usually because of some failure to upload it to the electronic patient care report or into the cloud. Um, and it gets written over at some point that, we, that we've had problems. And most of those were historical problems with an older defibrillator we had. The new one that we use is the Zoll X series and it holds a lot of data for a long time. So if there are any issues, we can typically get that. So we had exclusions for patients where we missed defibrillator files. We excluded pediatric arrests and just focused this on adults. Then we had some that were AED only some damaged defibrillator files where you could open them, but that really didn't contain meaningful data. And then we excluded patients that had less than one minute of CPR performed um, because it just wasn't, wasn't a meaningful contribution to our, our study. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and then moving along um, in terms of what actually happened, our interventions here. So of course, um, everyone is performing standard uh, ACLS based on the latest American Heart Association guidelines, but there are also two key interventions which um, seem a bit different uh, than what other systems might practice. If you could just briefly discuss those, please. One uh, that Hill has mentioned was um, providing an empiric shock to asystole. And uh, without going into a lot of detail on that, the rationale is really that um, because these prior studies has shown, have shown that your mileage may vary on interpretation of VF, um, and the most common misclassification is to call it asystole when it's really VF, um, giving an empiric shock is, in our thinking, not going to be harmful to the patients that already have a less than 1% chance of survival if they are in asystole and will be immensely beneficial. In fact, if we withhold it as, as that sentinel case occurred, the patient stands no chance of survival. Um, and you can look at studies that um, also compare different angles, um, so to speak, of um, lead vectors for your pads. And often uh, what appeared to be asystole at first when you change a pad vector is actually VF. So there, there is some, some amount of hidden VF in what looks ostensibly like asystole. So we added that as a system level check to um, protocolize it so that we wouldn't have one of those missed VF cases that never got a shock. But that of course meant that um, we plan to exclude asystole as um, something where um, we measured shock accuracy. We're really more interested in, did paramedics shock an underlying organized rhythm such as PEA or did they shock ventricular fibrillation? And then there was another one, but you'll have to remind me what that one was, Jeff. Sure. Yeah, it was around your, um, with the monitor technology, see-through CPR, I believe in the Zoles and how you handled uh, this electronic rhythm filtering technology. Yeah, and that's mainly there um, to allow for uh, identification as rapidly as possible of a shockable rhythm. Um, and we ask our medics to uh, monitor, you know, during compressions uh, to see if there's uh, a shockable rhythm that uh, either persists after a, a defibrillation attempt or recurs, um, and so that that can be identified and then and then perhaps defibrillated more quickly than if you're waiting fully for a prescribed two-minute interval. 
Uh, and it was interesting that you bring that up as, as an intervention in this because it actually confused some of our reviewers um, that, you know, assessing um, rhythm filtering technology alone was not one of the primary goals of the study. But like you point out, Jeff, that's sort of part of our whole protocol um, to manage cardiac arrest. Uh, and that's what at least part of our study looked at was how did we do functioning within our protocol? Um, because when Scott and I were going back and, and making these assessments of rhythm, because we don't have uh, documentation at each pulse or rhythm check of what the paramedic thought that rhythm was, um, all we could do is infer what their interpretation was based on their, um, uh, you know, what they did next. Did they deliver a shock or not? Um, and so that rhythm, rhythm filtering is definitely a part of our protocol and our bundle of care, but um, isn't necessarily something that we were specifically looking to evaluate. Yeah, and while we use that, we are confirming the rhythm briefly after the defibrillator is charged as soon as CPR is paused before deciding or confirming what, what we may or may not have seen with the rhythm filtering technology. Um, this allows us to be very aggressive with our shocking of ventricular fibrillation. If it recurs or fails to be terminated with the shock, we will, watching that rhythm filtering technology, will decide, hey, you know what, this is actually still VF or VF has come back. Let's shock it now. We're not going to wait till the end of a two-minute cycle. So there is that variability from, um, you know, Groups that don't have that technology have to wait, um, charge the defibrillator after two minutes, and then see if they've got something shockable at that point. So this this actually makes it um, easier on one hand, but more challenging on the other, because you're going to shock more frequently, but you're not going to pause for very long, and it's got to be less than 10 seconds. And our, our pre-shock pauses are typically somewhere around three to five seconds long. So you don't have much time, and uh, the, but the decision-making process actually starts after the last shock, where you're looking at the rhythm and seeing what, seeing if you can tell what happened from that shock. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, really trying to minimize that time off the chest and get those defibrillation interventions in quickly. Um, was also wondering in terms of protocols. Um, I mean, it, it seems like your protocols have changed over time with this new technology. Um, what sort of training was involved? I know in your system that really values QI, is it something continuous or did everyone uh, receive training when this technology was rolled out and then maybe every two years with ACLS updates? What does your training look like? Yeah, we, we have training every year for cardiac arrest, um, regardless of whether there have been updates. And now it's, you know, there are non five-year updates going on. So there's a lot to incorporate every year into new training. Uh, but it is something that required hands-on training with um, a simulator, which we used in collaboration with um, Zoll to um, generate these types of rhythms for um, for the, the monitor. And then uh, it was also didactics as well and, and presentation of what, what this stuff looks like. So at the beginning, I would say, um, you know, probably weren't very good at it, but got better with it over time. And, and um, you know, we didn't quantify that, but, but they very quickly learned how to use the technology. It's fairly simple. And um, one of the main 
one of the main ways in which it can fail is if people are slapping the patches when they perform CPR, hitting hitting the pads will create um, almost irreducible noise in the signal that, that won't be filtered out and they have to fall back on in every two minute cycle for interpreting the rhythm. And I will say one other thing that, that a few people have already touched on is the, the feedback that we give as part of our quality improvement process for cardiac arrest. I mean, that is, in effect, uh, one part of that is continued training, right? We send out a standardized form um, and occasionally when there are questions about rhythms, um, we'll take screenshots and send those out to crews and say, here's what we're looking at. This is what we think this was. Um, and so in effect, that's ongoing training um, for every, every one of these cases. And I think that's an important part of any quality improvement process is not just data collection for um, process changes, but that, that that is used to provide feedback um, to crews so that you have this sort of ongoing process as the name implies. Yeah, quality assurance really is part of the education process in our mind. Awesome. Awesome to hear about all that. And I definitely agree as providers, as field providers, we sometimes struggle. We have no idea what happens to our patient after we drop them off. Um, so especially in these resuscitation life and death cases, it's really helpful to hear from physician medical directors what's going on. Um, I know we're almost at the results. Don't want to hold us back too much, um, but briefly want to go over some of these measurements. Um, so, of course, we have uh, field measurements, and we also have some information that uh, we're able to get from the hospital. So, if we could just briefly talk about how you even got um, this information on outcomes and what outcomes we're even looking at. Absolutely. Thank you. So, um, we have resources in the state of Utah called the Community Health Information Exchange which allows quality assurance professionals to go into the medical records of any patient um, that we care for and see what happened. Um, so it's a web-based portal. And so we use that to determine outcomes for patients, whether they lived or died, what their neurologic status was at discharge, and uh, are able to relay that feedback to the providers. Yeah, and then in terms of data collection for the on-scene stuff, we've already touched a little bit on it. We uh, abstract some information from the EPCR about um, initial rhythm, but then we would uh, go back and as part of, again, the quality assurance and feedback process, we would uh, record and enter into a spreadsheet, basically any um, rhythm change, um, any defibrillation attempt, uh, and then we use that to obviously go back and, and review the data. Um, so I think that explains mainly how we did the, the kind of field data collection. So that's a, a painstaking process where you, when events occur, you enter a new row in the spreadsheet for a given case. So cases will have anywhere from a few rows when it's a patient with asystole with not much happening, maybe they got one shock and they were terminated at a certain time or patients that are in and out of ventricular fibrillation may have like 40 rows of data from different events that, that happened. They went back into VF at this time, then they got shocked at this time, et cetera. So it creates a nice uh, research database for us. It creates um, a way to um, dissect minute by minute the resuscitation and the decisions that were made. So not only could we look at the interpretation of the initial rhythm, but we could see we could impute the interpretation throughout the resuscitation because obviously 
as a paramedic or EMT, you, you document the initial rhythm, which we found is vital, uh, but you, all, you don't go through and document each decision you make at every two-minute cycle. So we have de facto information about whether you delivered a shock or not, but not your interpretation of the rhythm. Thanks for explaining that. Um, and then just wanted to uh, briefly talk about sensitivity and specificity so we can get right into the results since I know that was kind of the first numbers we were looking at. So sensitivity, of course, being our um, true positive rate. So looking at the probability of um, a patient receiving a shock if they have a shockable rhythm. And then specificity, both these numbers, of course, we ideally would be at one or 100%. And specificity is our probability of not receiving a shock if there's a non-shockable rhythm. I know there are kind of slight modifications based on um, how your study was done in this empiric shock. Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about where that fit in, and then maybe we'll start, uh, we'll move on into our results. Yeah, classically, um, you would create what's called a two by two table. So there's four squares in it. And you have on one side, the disease, whether it was positive or negative, the other side, whether the test was positive or negative, and then you can sort of fill those in. And that's basically what we did with the paramedic interpretation of the initial rhythm. So what we treated as true disease, positive or negative, was our interpretation of the rhythm. So um, we could, of course, be wrong. There's no better gold standard, though, that we could find to figure out whether it's VF. Maybe somebody will come up with one, but um, right now it's all eye of the beholder. And so as the physicians, we held ourselves out as the gold standard for interpretation. So it was whether we concurred with the interpretation or not um, for the paramedics interpretation of the initial rhythm. And that's how we filled that out and found that um, there was 89% sensitivity and 92% specificity for distinguishing between shockable and non-shockable rhythms. Now we excluded ones that were clearly to our minds asystole. We didn't interpret those as VF being shocked, but we had protocolized the shocking of asystole because of the aforementioned reasons. And so those were held out separately. So really, really we're interested in not shocking an organized rhythm and truly shocking a VF waveform. Absolutely, and I, I think one of the important pieces here is that you all assessed your inter-rater reliability in that it showed high reliability. You were uh, coming to the same conclusion the vast majority of the cases. Yeah, absolutely. It was not 100%, so even between the two of us, there was a little bit of variability on some cases because we're also human interpreters. But um, we had high agreement in terms of the number of cases that we both looked at and independently and then compared what we um, thought the rhythm was um, once we had done that. We did that in about 11% of cases, I think. So that suggests that um, there wasn't going to be a wild difference between the ones that Hill looked at and the ones that I looked at. Um, they would be pretty standard in terms of the gold standard. Absolutely. And so let's take a look at the breakdown here in table one. We see the what the rhythms were. Um, does this fit with you know what you would expect in your system or you know anything that we should call out here to look at? I think uh, it fits with national data uh, and CARES data in particular on the proportion of shockable rhythms versus non-shockable 
algorithms. So it's it's not not very different from what uh, we see the average North American cohort in terms of the distribution of of uh, rhythms for sure. Interestingly, shockable rhythms have been declining in prevalence over the last 30 years for unclear reasons, um, but ours are in line with with uh, pretty much everybody else. Yeah, and for those who may not have table one in front of them, we're talking about about 40% of uh, encounters were asystole on initial arrest rhythm. Um, and then ventricular fibrillation was about 22% and ventricular tachycardia at 1%. So that, that also does fit. Um, I do want to look at table two as well, because I think this was an interesting way of showing the patient characteristics. And it goes to what you said about, you know, which ones were misclassified. And we talked about, you know, the initial sensitivity and specificity. Uh, so when we look at this, we see that overall in table two, there's a low proportion of records were misclassified. Um, and do you want to talk anything about whether it was more likely to misclassify a shockable rhythm, non-shockable rhythm, or anything else that our audience should be paying attention to in table two? I don't think we, and Scott can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think we identified a specific trend where, you know, if there was misclassification, it was almost always in this direction or in that direction. Um, I, don't, I don't recall there being any specific um, Well, there was trend 20, there, but 21 um, out of 197 shockable rhythms that were misclassified. And then uh, there were 41 out of 504, if I've added those up correctly. Yeah. So, so I think that is uh, pretty close to one another in terms of the proportion that were misclassified. Uh, it's about 10% in each group, unless I'm I'm doing my mental math wrong. Put me on the spot here to I, uh, to add and. <laughs> Wait, to, no stats quizzes, I promised. <laughs> uh, that's in line with when we went back, which was actually kind of fun, when we went back and looked at our 10 or 11% that we sort of reviewed um, and compared with each other, um, there weren't any, when we were looking at rhythms that, uh, you know, one of us always classified one way and the other always classified the other way. It seemed like a pretty even mix. Um, so I think that would be congruent with what we saw in terms of our paramedic interpretation as well. Right. So no clear one direction or another, which I think is an important piece of this. Um, and I know I had seen an audience question come in from Chris around, you know, this initially kind of looks at Surface perhaps as a QI project, wondering how much it's going to apply to me. But perhaps one of the takeaways is that uh, this rhythm misclassification is likely to be more widespread, not just in one system, um, and that it's worth looking at across shockable and non-shockable rhythms. Absolutely. And, and obviously these are paramedics under scrutiny. They know they're being watched. They know they're getting feedback for this. Um, and so it may be different in systems that don't have that level of scrutiny in terms of the, the learning and feedback loop we talked about. And we just don't know the comparison there of, of paramedics that didn't get this type of scrutiny. Right. Uh, so I want to look at figure two. I think this one is really interesting. This is a description of all the shocks that were delivered were analyzed and then looked at what rhythm what happened after the shock. Uh, before I ask my questions, I'll ask you, uh, what stands out to you about figure two? Um, I think what's, what is interesting to me is uh, the variability in terms of uh, rhythms 
changing to other rhythms after shocks, right? It's not like um, most of the shockable rhythms turned to organized rhythm or most asystole when it was shocked uh, remained asystole. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that 25% of asystole when shocked turned into an organized rhythm. Um, so it was just interesting to see that uh, there weren't uh, a vast majority of rhythms that either remained the same or changed to something different. And it was to some degree um, all over the board, obviously very few cases of non-shockable rhythms that then uh, changed to a shockable rhythm after a defibrillation attempt. But um, that was something that I thought was, was somewhat interesting. And it is notable that 11% of shocks were delivered to an underlying organized PEA type rhythm, not ventricular tachycardia, but um, again, PEA can have a variable rate. And so to the eye, it can be appear to some people to be ventricular tachycardia if that rate gets higher. And we didn't look at that specifically, but that may be one cause for misinterpretation. Um, and then uh, it may be that when Paramedics were shocking. Some of the QRSs were buried during the see-through CPR part, and when they paused, they thought, "Hey, this looks like aces. Let's just shock it, or something like that." You know, we don't have those intra-arrest decisions, but um, it does show that you get different results from shocking different rhythms, and it's kind of all over the place. And for me, the the interesting piece in asystole was a quarter of them turned out to be an organized rhythm after a shock in asystole. And I don't yeah. know how that compares across the nation, but that's interesting. That uh, that does um, that does add to um, you know some elusive evidence that that uh, a certain proportion of these will be ventricular fibrillation. It may be as high as twenty percent in the literature of asystole. When you look at it from another lead, it turns out to to be ventricular fibrillation. Absolutely. But it's not not uh, definitive evidence for sure, but it is uh, intriguing. If, it, if we knew the answers, it would just be called search. That's why we gotta do the research. <laughs> That's right. When I go to the American Heart Association meetings, um, sometimes I'll run into someone during a bathroom break and I always tell them, at least in here, we know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, so let's, let's talk about the, the main event, shall we? What happened to the patients in the misclassified groups? Uh, it wasn't good. Um, and that, yeah, like you said, that's the main event is that um, any patient, well, we, we observed no survivors um, when the initial rhythm was misclassified. And I think that's part of what we get to in the discussion. And if you want to hold off on this, we can. But um, that may be because of um, care that was delivered on scene, although we observed actually a high number, uh, a high, a high uh, incidence of ROSC um, and patients going to the hospital um, but still no survivors. And so I think that raises the question of um, how much of the uh, outcomes that we observed, the poor outcomes, no survivors, were due to in the field care as a result of the misclassification of initial rhythm and how much um, is the in-hospital um, care affected. And there's been a lot of literature out there um, recently about the importance of um, post-arrest care and the outcomes of these patients. And I think that's what we touch on in our discussion a little bit, um, is that this misclassification may not just affect what happens in the field, but may also affect what happens in the hospital for this patient or these patients. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely, well, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, it was a surprising finding to us. So it wasn't like we expected that. We thought the survival rate would be 
maybe similar. Of course, if you if you have a patient with VF and never shock them, the the outcome is is um, I don't know of anybody surviving that. It would be virtually impossible for, for that patient to survive. And we only had two cases of that, fortunately, in the entire data set. But then we had another group that eventually received a shock, even though the initial rhythm was misinterpreted. At some point, the paramedic came around and said, you know, this now looks to me like ventricular fibrillation. I'm going to shock it. And uh, almost half of those patients got ROSC and uh, went to the hospital but as Hill mentioned, um, they often had early withdrawal of care, um, earlier than anticipated, less hypothermia, less um, interventions in terms of interventional cardiology, and that may have contributed to their um, absolute zero survival. In the PEA case, um, they also did poorly. So if we misclassified them as VF and uh, got ROSC, transported those patients, they also died uh, um, universally and so we're not sure what that is, if it um, reflects that giving shocks to a patient in PEA actually makes their outcome worse, or uh, is there some other effect um, that we really don't know, but it is also intriguing. And, and I think other groups have seen something similar that when PEA is shocked, the outcomes are worse. So it's a two-edged sword here. Yeah, that's really interesting. And in your discussion, you mentioned this term for what you both described here, prognostication bias. And I want to talk a little bit more about what that looks like and the influence of you know, the EMS handoff, because I think it's also mentioned in the discussion that the providers don't always have immediate access to the defibrillation files, especially as a, an arrest is ongoing. Um, so can you describe a little bit about prognostication bias and how the handoff could possibly affect that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll, I guess, talk about some of the ideas and Scott can chime in with more technical definitions. Um, but I think the important takeaway in my mind is, I think what we've already mentioned is that um, the information provided by our, pre, the information gained by our pre-hospital providers and then provided to the in-hospital teams is critically important. Um, and I think it's a plug for systems where pre-hospital and in-hospital records are integrated um, and integrated quickly. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's amazing, even in the hospital, when I look at charts of patients in the ED and I go through and then I look at the history and physicals written by the admitting services or progress notes written by the admitting services that mention what happened in the ED, um, how often that information is not accurate. Um, it's like a game of telephone, right? Details are lost sort of down the line as things get communicated. Um, and I think that happens also, as, as many of you listening know, um, to the information that the pre-hospital providers give to us in the ED, and then it's lost um, you know, at subsequent steps when you admit a patient to the ICU team, and then they get transferred to another team. Um, so I think what I would say is about prognostication bias is that um, the initial information that's conveyed by our pre-hospital providers is definitely used and is really important in the minds of you know those of us in the hospital um, and we use that and we make decisions based on that and so we're biased um, by that information um, so I don't know if, if maybe if I didn't make sense Scott can uh, give you a more succinct answer there but. no I, I thought that was good maybe the most succinct um, phrase for it is the self-fulfilling prophecy bias meaning um, I don't think this patient's going to do well, so I'm not going to do as much for this patient or I'm not going to take care of them as well as I would a patient that I think has a good chance of survival. 
and that be, can become a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will, that the patient doesn't does do poorly because of the withdrawal of of good care from the patient. But um, you know, I it, it would be interesting to know, and I don't know how you would measure this, but one of the one study that someone could do in EMS research is to figure out how much um, bad patient outcomes are due to information loss and information conversion, for lack of a better word, flipping of um, variables as patients move through episodes of care from the pre-hospital setting to the ED to the hospital. Because I certainly notice this as I go through patients' charts and find out what happened to them, that it is a game of telephone right now. And so ways to share information could, um, I am convinced, um, save people's lives. Absolutely, keeping it more accurate. And now I know we are in our last few moments together, so I will invite the other panelists if they have any last questions. And it looks like Dr. Toon has one. Welcome. I would like to just say one, but I'm gonna, the one that's most burning on my mind is, I find it interesting that after a shock, that you would use the C through CPR to see if they were still in VFib and then administer another shock before the two minute period of time. I, I'd be curious, how often might that have happened and what impact did that have on the CPR fraction during that period of time and did it affect outcomes in those patients? I mean, that may be information not available, but it's fascinating to me because it's just different than what might be the common practice. Yeah. Well, um, we did summarize that in um, our, our chest compression fraction in, um, I'm not, I don't think it was in this paper, but in our Journal of the American Heart Association paper. And it was, uh, the average was above 80%. Now it varies um, between shockable rhythms and non-shockable rhythms because uh, the non-shockable rhythms tend to have higher chest compression fractions overall because um, there's not that much to do except give CPR and some medications, right? And occasionally you look at the, the rhythm. Um, with VF, particularly highly recurrent VF, that tends to go down because you're taking hands off to shock frequently, but um, is still very high. I would say um, the average is still over 80%. Um, but it does vary. You know, we have some cases where it, it lands below that, and um, but we do train and give feedback on this, so it does keep it tight for for our paramedics, and they all have under their belts a procedure whereby you recognize the rhythm with C through CPR, you charge the defibrillator, and announce that you're going to be giving a shock. There's a countdown to releasing the chest and having the hands off the chest, and then within three to five seconds is our typical pre-shock pause. They've confirmed or disconfirmed the rhythm and gone back on the chest. So it can in practice and often is in practice very tight. Occasionally the crews get off their game and have a really terrible resuscitation attempt where we see long pre-shock pauses, but they hear from me when they when that happens. So we know we know how often that occurs and it fortunately is not very often. But I don't Again, it's just a, a, an interesting different than what I've heard other practices uh, doing that multiple shocks possibly within a two minute period of time, at least in my experience. And the only other question that I have, and I have to let Dave in here because I can tell he's just dying to ask another question. Um, are your reviews only done by physicians or do you have paramedic clinicians that would uh, do reviews and even answer some of the questions about what is and what isn't a shockable rhythm? And I'm just curious about what level of 
paramedic involvement there is in the review process? Yeah, I was going to say right now it is it is physician reviews, um, but but it's a a great idea I think to have um, you know paramedics and EMTs involved in a quality improvement process in general um, for learning for seeing how different providers uh, provide care, how different providers document the care that they provide. Um, and so in terms of our larger CQI process outside of just cardiac arrest, we would like to move towards having more peer involvement because, because I think there's a lot of value in that. Right now, as it stands for cardiac arrest, it's, it's physician review only. And I would say one of, the, one of the halo benefits of that is that we think of research ideas like this going through the process of reviewing these all very closely and it raises lots of questions that we think wow that would be interesting to study and uh really briefly on on shocking more frequently than every two minutes the, the rationale for that we we don't know if that improves outcomes frankly but we do know that um, the longer you are in vf the longer you are in vf vf begets vf and it it has a high burn rate for your intracellular energy stores so you run out of energy energy faster in vf for your heart than you do in any other rhythm. And uh, so our, our thinking is get the patient out of VF as fast as possible because that's the first step in return of spontaneous circulation. It makes sense to me. I just was curious about that. And uh, I would encourage you, I, I feel that paramedics and EMS providers in general should be conducting more of their own QA and not to discount you guys, but we should take responsibility for our profession. Ooh, uh, there, there's a, there's a little uh, uh, self-flagellation, uh, uh, um, and, and I'm glad Bill. It keeps things lively when, uh, when Bill and I start to banter. I personally love medical director involvement and think we need more of it. Um, and, and smart medical directors like yourselves doing some pretty in-depth analysis while we understand what's happening in the field. I, I do agree with you, Bill, in terms of um, the model that I saw with um, the Resuscitation Academy in King County and all of the work that Medic One does, does involve an initial uh, uh, code reader, a code stat reader that will do an initial analysis and return the the um, the feedback immediately. So the peer review is, I think, part of that sort of let's audio record, let's make sure we got the message right, let's 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 you know read back or confirm if we want to use aviation terms so that we don't have those handoff uh, errors. And I, I do I do find that we are in that in that uh, if you know it's if somebody who th thinks that their system is perfect is somebody who hasn't looked right Remily that's that's what Mike Tegman says and I I 100% agree that we have to be accountable for our actions and this kind of read back double check make sure that we the same the message got sent make sure we're actually uh, you know shocking the right rhythm. Um, all of it fits together in that culture of safety that I just, I, I'm thrilled with this paper. I think that um, it really sends a message. We have a lot of educators, a lot of paramedic classes that join us in, in, in their entirety. Uh, and so if there's paramedic students tuned in today, I'd say, you know, it's, it's not just that we humans need to learn to interpret better. It's that we need to admit that we will have errors and then double checking those errors is 
really actually going to lead us to, to better care. So um, yay for, for uh, again, practicing what we preach and making sure that perhaps in simulation we're we're not only practicing the the you know rhythms that the rhythm generator creates but also some messy i don't know if this is pea or uh asystole or it's actually vfib or a combination of all three of them uh in you know in span a span of a short amount of time so anyway congratulations and i will interject real quickly and say that you know just because we're doing physician review of these arrests doesn't mean that we don't agree with Dave and Bill about the value of um, peer involvement in the CQI process. So if any of our providers are listening or <laughs> in the future uh, and want to get more involved, bring it on. I love it. And unfortunately, I have the unpopular task of wrapping us up on time, but I really, really appreciate you all sharing your time and expertise and for a great discussion on a really interesting paper. I'll allow you all to have the last word before I take us out. Um, are there, is there any last key insight or thing that you would like our audience to take away from this as they're starting their own QI projects or their own research projects? Um, I will leave it to you for the last word, Dr. Youngquist. Well, I will say, number one, what you do makes a difference. Your decision-making in the field, the way you act as a professional, the way you communicate with the healthcare team makes a difference in terms of patient outcomes. So keep that in mind. I always strive for excellence, and QA is really part of that process of um, measuring and improving. Dr. Stecklin. I don't think I have much to add to that. I think that's a great take-home to end on. Perfect. Well, I again want to thank you not only for this paper, but you all are very dedicated to EMS research and performance improvement. So thank you again for sharing your time. Uh, I do want to have a couple of reminders for our audience, and that is that we're going to have the education version of the Journal Club podcast on Friday, April 22nd, and we will be back here with our clinical podcast on the second Monday of the month, which will be May 9th. So thank all of you for listening and for all of your great participation and questions, and we look forward to nerding out again next time. Thank you. Thanks for having us.